How do we keep feeding a growing population while, at the same time, reversing climate change and regenerating life on Earth? That is such a key question, and the great news is that there are so many promising solutions out there. I decided to start this podcast because I was tired of hearing about how bad things are, and I wanted to instead focus on how good things could be. This episode was made in partnership with Soil Capital. I'm your host, Raphael, and this is the Deep Seed Podcast. Joining me today is Anthony Pierce, a practitioner of regenerative agriculture here at Moat Farm. We're in, um, in Stoke Mandeville, just northwest of London, a few miles. Hi, Anthony. Thank you for um, inviting me at your Good farm. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Could you maybe start by introducing yourself, but without talking about your profession just yet? Okay, so my name's Anthony Pierce. We farm a family farm and it's a third generation. I had a degree in biology and trained as an accountant before coming back to the family farm. And could you maybe tell us about your journey as a farmer? As a farmer? So as a farmer, we've, we're a mixed farm. Historically, when I came back to the farm, we had cattle, beef cattle, sheep, Christmas turkeys, and uh, combinable crops. So anything that you would put through a combine harvester. And we quite quickly dropped cattle after uh, BSE, the mag cow disease. And then uh, we had a, a large infrastructure project, which has meant that I've a railway has been put through the farm so I don't have the sheep anymore but we still have Christmas turkeys and about 400 hectares of arable farming. As I mentioned you're a practitioner of regenerative agriculture maybe you could just start by telling us what this means to you what does regenerative agriculture mean to you? Okay, so I, I think the danger of regenerative agriculture is it can cover such a wide spectrum of practices. Um, so I would say that my home farm, I would be, I would describe as hardcore regenerative, whereby we take quite an extreme, uh, pure form of, of regenerative agriculture. So if you go back to the five principles of keeping a living root in the soil as much as possible. We only grow spring crops on the home farm in order that I can always grow a cover crop preceding the spring crop. So we would plant the cover crop in the autumn after the combine has passed through the field. And then in the spring, that would be killed and we would move in with a spring wheat crop to take it through to harvest. The, we would try and incorporate animals into the rotation as much as possible. So we have sheep that would graze the cover crop during the winter. We direct drill. So we're trying to move the soil as little as possible. And after the sheep leave, I can just cut a slot put the seed in and cover it up so there's no ploughing, there's no moving of the soil, try and keep that to a very minimum. We try and introduce as much diversity as possible. So that's in our cover crops, multi-species 
much diversity as possible, if I can grow multiple varieties of wheat in the same field at the same time, I will. And so that, and, and try and mix up the rotation. So we're not doing the same thing all the time. So as much variety, as much diversity as possible. And, and so that kind of builds on the principles of regenerative agriculture. But I suppose the last thing is minimal intervention. So we try and use as little uh, fertilizer and as little pesticides as we can. Did you start with more conventional practices? It sounds like a very complete, very diverse system you have here from what you just described. But did you start with more conventional practices and transition gradually towards these this practices? Um, how did this transition journey happen? I think the transition journey is, is a very important point of discussion because quite often you hear regenerative farmers who have gone through a transition saying how wonderful life is on the other side but very few people talk about their transition period the, the possible exception being Gabe Brown who, who is one of the um, pioneers of regenerative agriculture who nearly went broke during his transition period and that's kind of skipped over so i think it's very important to try and document and explain that transition journey so when i was in america with at gabe's um, soil health academy we he made the point that you should only risk what you're willing to lose so i'm in quite a fortunate position on, on, on my own farm and so i've taken a quite strict interpretation of regenerative agriculture in order to try and speed my way through the transition period as fast as possible. I also have a landlord who and I tenant for them and I also farm for my for my family uh, for, for my father and in those cases they will only take on practices that work on my farm. So I'm quite strict and they will take on as much or as little as they see being successful. But if we go back even a little bit further, why did you decide to make this transition? Why did you decide to go to America and, and um, meet Gabe Brown and study at, at his academy? Yeah, I, that, I think that my first, uh, so my land is quite heavy. I think every farmer believes their land is heavy, um, but we have a high clay content means that soil gets saturated quite quickly. It means working with the soil is, is quite difficult. And my journey actually started with trying to save money. So I bought a, a strip till drill, uh, one where I can leave the soil unworked, one pass, it cultivates the soil and, and puts the seed in, in one journey. We, we already uh, discussed this in previous episode, but just to make sure for people who are just joining us today, today for the first time, like what is a strip till and, and why it's uh, different in the way it works the soil? Yes. So I think uh, when farmers talk about direct drilling at one end of the spectrum, that is where uh, the soil is just cut, usually with a disc, I would say, and the, and the seed is put in the ground and then the soil is, covers the seed. So that's at one extreme, the regenerative extreme. 
The other extreme is where you would plough the soil and then work it down to make it small again, and then you plant the seed in the worked soil. And there is a never-ending spectrum between very worked soil and direct drilled soil. Strip till is probably 60% of the way up the spectrum, whereby you will have a leg in the soil that will move some soil and it will create a drainage channel and some degree of soil movement. And it's worth remembering that when you move soil, uh, air gets in, the carbon breaks down and that releases energy that the new seed can make use of. So you get better results the more soil you move. Okay. And what is the interest in uh, trying to move as little soil as possible and go towards this direct drill? So exactly as I just said with the that process, so there are uh, sugars secreted through the roots of a plant and they feed the microbes in the soil and they create a glue called globulin. And this sticks the soil together. However, if you put uh, air in the soil, the bacteria in the soil can use this, this carbon and oxygen to make, you know, to breed, to replicate. In the end, that gives off nitrogen that the new seed can use, but it also releases carbon dioxide. And so the more you move the soil, the greater your carbon uh, release. And there's some interesting um, images generated by NASA that show uh, in the spring when all the American farmers start moving their soil after a long winter, a huge plume of CO2 is released from the, from the USA. And that is just a physical representation of the American farmers moving so much soil. Right. So by tilling or plowing, you're, you're sort of um, building a short-term fertility for your, for your plants to grow really well. But at the same time, you're um, disturbing the life of the soil and you're emitting a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. Exactly. You're helping your crop, but you're hindering the environment. So is the goal to try and, and move the soil as little as possible over time? Or is there some kind of happy in between where you can move it just enough so that you get the fertility you need to plant your, your crop, uh, but it doesn't disturb the soil so much that the that, uh, soil life is affected in a, in a bad way. So I think in, a, the, in America, the calculation is that they lose about half, so half an inch, which would be say one centimeter of topsoil each year due to that breakdown. So the, the more soil you move, the greater the breakdown. And that is where the statistic of we have 50 harvests left in the world comes from because they take the average depth of topsoil. If we're using up a little bit each year, we have less soil. Right, that's, that's really interesting. It's something we haven't discussed yet in the podcast. So you're talking about topsoil. Yes. How does it differ from... Uh, the rest of the soil. The rest of the soil. So the topsoil is the dark, uh, 
Regenerative farmers describe it as the rich chocolate cake on the top. Mm. It should have holes in, it should break down, crumble in your hands. I think if you spoke to any gardener, they would know what good topsoil feels like, but we struggle to describe it. It smells good, it feels good. So in reality, that rich chocolate cake, full, full of air, that is the best way of describing it. Right. But that's where everything's happening. This is yes. where the, the, the nutrients are, the microbial life is, is working hard to, to feed um, the plants. Each other. There's uh, the soil food web is probably the best um, description of, of how the system works. Completely uh, interrelated between the plants secreting energy through their roots about 60% of a plant's energy is given out through its roots to support bacteria and other microorganisms in the soil and then they provide either through uh, fungal interactions but they they provide nutrients back to the plant that maybe the plant can't um, acquire itself Right. And then going back to the, the topsoil, and then you said that uh, we speak about having 50 harvests left and that we lose half an inch of topsoil every every year. So that topsoil that we need to, to grow crops, yep. it's disappearing. It's like a finite resource that we're using up that has a limit. Can be. So um, the Rodale Institute in America, they're an organic institute that... Uh, has a long-term trial and they've shown that if you don't disturb your soil that and you let use cover crops and you you practice regenerative agriculture the amount of topsoil can actually increase and in the last book Charles Darwin ever wrote was about earthworms and how they build topsoil so it is possible to build topsoil And the easiest way of describing it is look at the world and where the best topsoil is. So the best topsoil is in the Great Plains of the America. They're talking about sort of 15, 16 feet of topsoil. And how was that generated? That was generated by herds of bison moving through, eating and trampling long grass into the soil and uh, obviously fertilizing the soil as they went past the worms come up grab that nutrition drag it down in the soil and over a long period of time that generates topsoil and so what you're trying to do in regenerative agriculture is mirror that system as closely as possible within modern practices right so you're going from a an extractive model that uh, diminishes the amount of fertility and the amount of topsoil that you have available to a regenerative uh, system where you're trying to rebuild the life in the soil, but also the, the amount of topsoil. Exactly. Is, is that wor working out for you? Have, have you um, been able to quantify or measure your topsoil over the, the years? So it's uh, the straight answer would be no. I think I'm too early in the process. They talk about, I think Darwin talks about a quarter of an inch, so like a one centimeter of topsoil every 10 years. So it's, it is a slow process. That is the natural process. Yeah. yeah. But you can uh, use proxy or alternative measures. So the first thing is your the amount of biological life. 
that would be your first measure. And that's quite standard. And my soils test very highly for for biological life. Then the next point of measurement would be the amount of fungal activity on your soil in your soil. Uh, so most conventional agricultural soils would be very high in bacteria, quite very low in fungal. If you were to test a woodland, it would be very high in fungal activity, quite low in uh, bacterial activity. So that's your first measure. And then from there, you're looking into uh, microbial organisms like earthworms. Can you do earthworm counts to see those increasing? And then finally, I would say apex predators. You're looking at bird numbers. So we also measure not only earthworm numbers, but also bird numbers. And have you noticed a, a difference when it comes to these, uh, these animals around the farm and the biodiversity around the farm in, in general? Yes. So we, we're entering our second round of bird counts and we're already seeing an improvement in, in bird numbers. And certainly as far as earthworm counts, they are going out up And we are also seeing sort of, as far as practicing farmers, our soil is easier to work and machines can access the soil for a bit larger windows where other neighbors are struggling. It must be amazing, right? Looking at your farms and seeing that you have more animals and more birds coming. And that's all thanks to the efforts you, you're doing on your farm. Absolutely. And, and yes, that is very exciting. Yeah, gratifying. Right? <laughs> All the hard work's and, paying off. And, and what about the, the earthworms? We keep hearing about them being so important and such a great um, metric almost to look at. Do you actually measure how many earthworms per square meter or something like that? Well, it's actually uh, even more complicated than that because it is different species uh, of earthworm and they occupy different areas in the profile of the soil. So we have a, uh, a mat and we dig a fixed amount of soil, break the soil up, take the earthworms out, and I can place them on, on this measuring uh, mat and I, and I can send it off to a lab and it, sh and it enables them to measure how big the earthworms are, what species they are. And that makes a big difference because quite a few earthworms will only breed when they get to a certain size. So the bigger your earthworms are, the more likely they are to breed. And what does the, the results say? Well, I, I, haven't, uh, I you know, haven't had enough uh, in data entry in order to be able to, make, uh, be able to comment on the different species, but certainly our numbers are going up. Can you share any um, innovative or unconventional farming practice you've implemented on your farm That might not be widely known or used. Uh, there's probably plenty of unconventional um, things on our farm. I suppose if we, st I think if we started with our rotation and and how we work through the year, that's probably the best way of of viewing it. So we can either we can blow seed onto into a standing crop of wheat. So say we started with, with a, a crop just before it's harvested. I blow seed into the standing crop before the combine's gone through. The combine then can cut the, the, the wheat. It'll take the seed out and it'll blow the st chopped straw 
back over the stubble. And that creates a sandwich where you have uh, the soil and a seed sitting on it, a new seed sitting on it, and then the straw on top. This has the effect of when the sun uh, bakes the soil, it sweats and the straw layer traps moisture and the plant can grow. So even though it's the hottest and driest time of the year, the plant still grows. And that's really, really important because, for example, if we're growing mustard in, the, in, the, in August, 10 days of difference in the planting date can make the, the about half a meter of difference in the height of the crop. So really you want to get the crop growing as quickly as possible. That's incredible. I've never heard about this technique. How do you blow seeds onto a field? Uh, so we have a machine with, a, with 24 meter wings and uh, yes, it just blows the seed out through outlets every half a meter. So you have your growing crop and then you blow the seeds onto the field and they just fall down onto the ground, right? And then you cut down the, the crop, yep. you combine it. Yep. New word I just learned uh, <laughs> recently. Um, and then with the residue of straw, yes. then all of this gets, um, what, how we just describe oh, it? As a sandwich. Or, it just or, falls, or, uh, falls back down onto yep. the ground to just be on top of the seed. So the yes. seed is in contact with the ground, but it's is protected by the straw on top of it. Indeed, yeah. Right. So the, the big problem is, is, is a bit like gardening. Uh, a seed needs seed-soil contact. That is why a gardener would put a seed in the ground and then maybe stand on it to, mm. to give that good contact. So if you cut the crop first and then you try and put the seed down, then the, you have to mix the straw and the, and the soil and there's, the contact isn't very good. Whereas if you can blow it onto the soil first mm. and then put straw on top, you've got much better seed-soil contact. And you had some good results with this technique? Yes, and, and also you get a few extra days. So it's that little bit earlier, so you get a bigger cover crop. Um, we can get cover crop, mustard cover crop, that will grow five to six feet tall in two months. Right. You have a YouTube channel yes, um, where you, you explain in quite a lot of detail certain aspects of your farm. And I, I watched a video this morning you released very recently about agroforestry yes. and your plans to implement agroforestry techniques on, to, on your farm. Something I'm really keen to talk to you about because I, I've read about it in books, uh, but I have not met yet a farmer who is actually implementing this, this technique. So I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit more about uh, what techniques you're planning to implement. So I think when it comes to inspiration for these sorts of projects, uh, for me, it comes from trying to generate biodiversity and edges. So wherever there's a, an edge between two different environments, you get more biodiversity. And when I was looking at uh, what I could do on my farm, I was inspired by Joel Salatin and his enterprise stacking. And so I looked at what I could do on my farm to incorporate all these different ideas. And there are so many different ideas in re the regenerative sphere that it makes you have to, they talk a lot about context 
understanding the environment around your farm and what options you have. So we already do Christmas turkeys. So we do about 700 Christmas turkeys and they're all sold retail through our own website direct to the public. So we were looking at products that could complement our turkeys. So we already have a distillery on the farm where we distill a fruit gin and we sell that with our turkeys and we were looking at other products that could complement the Christmas turkeys. So within our um, agroforestry, we have uh, spruce trees for Christmas trees, we have fruit trees we have nut trees all mixed in to try and provide that diversity uh, as far as the regenerative principle of increasing diversity. Then there's also a lot of edge because it's alley cropped. So it's lines with grass in between that our t- we hope our turkeys will be able to graze. And then hopefully we can try and make products out of the the fruit and the nuts in order to sell at the same time as we're selling our Christmas turkeys. Right, there's there's quite a, a few new concepts in there that I really want to okay. discuss in more detail. So you decided to use more trees, so that's the key uh, idea in agroforestry yep. on your system. So you mentioned that it adds diversity, biodiversity, but also diversity in your operation. And so that's something I already uh, understood from what you just said. But what are the other benefits of having trees as part of a farming system so they obviously are very good at fixing carbon um and so one of the points about designing an agroforestry scheme is to best understand what you're trying to achieve so that comes back to the regenerative uh principle of context understanding your farm so when we looked at ours uh, we use a lot of compost on our uh, arable land. And so we tried to choose tree species that help us make compost. So if we're not using, if we have a small field that may be around the outside of a field that we're not using, we chip that grass, bring it back to the farm, we mix it with wood chip that we could pull out of our agroforestry scheme, mix it all together, helps reduce my fertilizer bill. So it's very difficult to name a particular reason for doing something because it's unique to each farm. But when I looked at it, I'm looking at, can I generate firewood? Can I generate help generate compost? Can I help make products to complement my turkey enterprise? So they're all different factors that fed into what tree species I chose in order to to build an agroforestry diverse planting scheme. And you you mentioned also uh, alley cropping. Yes. Uh, Could you describe what that is? Okay, so if you imagine a line of trees like uh, as per a normal uh, plantation, but instead of you planting another line of trees, say a meter or two meters apart, you would leave a much wider spacing, say uh, 24 meters or 36 meters, in order that your machinery can, uh, your arable machinery can pass 
between the rows of trees. So you could combine arable farming uh, with also having trees on the fields. Exactly. And that's the principle of uh, three-dimensional farming, that actually in an arable system, you are really only using two dimensions. You're using a flat field. But if you start incorporating trees, then you're using the vertical plane as well. So I'm, I'm just picturing now um, a field yep. with arable crops and with some rows of trees there. Uh, isn't there an issue with the sun accessing those arable crops? Yes, that's an interesting question because actually when you look at it, quite often arable crops use the sunniest months just to dry. They don't actually use utilize it for energy storage within the seed. Whereas if you took an apple, for example, they mature much later in the season. So that sunny month of August, they're actually harvesting that sunlight energy in order to, to ripen the fruit. So you're actually the, if you think of farming as just um, solar harvesting, you're actually achieving a much better solar harvest by having different crops with different seasons. I have a very small favor to ask. On the app that you're using right now to listen to this podcast, if you could just click on the Deep Seat page and hit the follow button, that would be really helpful for me and for the podcast. Thank you so much. How do you engage with the local community and other farmers to promote regenerative practices? Well, we touched on the YouTube channel and really that, that is my, my focus because um, when I was in America, we dis and, and generally in the UK as well, you know, regenerative farmers are still a relatively small uh, measure of total farming. And therefore, and it can be quite difficult in the fact that you're doing something different. And farming is, is a very um, social uh, calling. A lot of farmers will support each other. And therefore, if one farmer is doing something that's quite different to the conventional system, there's actually quite a lot of pressure on him to conform to what everybody else is doing and therefore what I try and do with my farm and my YouTube channel is provide other regenerative farmers with examples of what I'm doing and the lessons that I'm learning hopefully so they don't have to make as many mistakes as me but also to provide them with that reassurance that there are other people that we are a wider community and that they can ask me questions because I, I, from my point of view, this has been hugely helpful in the comment section when, when other regenerative farmers comment or pass observations. That's, it's a very much a two-way dialogue. So you, you sort of feel like you're part of a community now and not necessarily with uh, people that are just around your farm, yes. but with a broader uh, community online of people who are trying to experiment with these methods. Certainly. And it's kind of nice not to feel alone in this process. <laughs> Very nice um, not to feel alone. But the people you, I don't know, you meet at the pub and people around, or you grew, you grew up with that are also in the farming uh, business around. Uh, are there other people who are also 
trying to implement these kind of techniques that you're um, uh, helping out or who have helped you? Yes. So I think regenerative farmers can learn a lot from organic farmers. So John Palsey in the UK, he certainly helped me a lot. And But uh, it's interesting because it's certainly a two-way conversation. I know that he watches my channel and quite often he will WhatsApp me and say, make past comment. So I think in the, that as far as someone helping me, when it goes in the other direction, I know that I've got probably half a dozen farmers who actively communicate with me, say, oh, I've seen that, I've, you know, I've saw, saw that problem. I'm having just the same on my farm. What would you suggest? So there's really quite open dialogue. And we also have a, a, a WhatsApp group locally called um, you know, Soil Lovers. And uh, we all communicate and share share within that group because there are pressures that are unique to regenerative farming that you know aren't being voiced in the wider agricultural community so it helps just to you know have a space where we can ask each other a question so you you mentioned that you're still a, a minority um, a community right and most Absolutely. people are still practicing conventional <laughs> agriculture but so far um all the, the farmers i've met who are into regenerative agriculture seems to be very excited about their operations and quite passionate about it and They do say that it's it's difficult and it takes a lot of effort to transition, but they're all really happy about the results so far. <laughs> so why aren't more farmers transitioning to these practices? What is the the biggest um, barrier for farmers to transition to this type of agriculture? What is the, the main reason why so few farmers are doing the transition? It's an interesting question, Anna. You are actually asking them to transition away from convention and that's really quite difficult and I honestly didn't give enough weight to that when I first started and I can remember um, th there's an easy way of explaining it so we in the UK a lot of farmers employ agronomists who would walk your fields every two weeks in my case and then tell me, advise me what chemicals I need to put on in order to protect my crops and achieve the best yield. Now, when I told my agronomist that I was going to take a regenerative approach, that didn't stop the chemical recommendations coming. And so it... And I've heard of uh, other farmers who successfully change from chemicals in a can to bugs in a jug, as we call it. So, so biological control. And it comes in the same way. You order it from a chemical company and they've all they've succeeded in doing is transferring from chemical agriculture to bio, you know, biological control. But they're still buying a lot of stuff in. And that is sort of an easier transition to do because you're saying, well, actually, I'm still doing the same, the same practice. I'm still walking the fields with my agronomist, ordering chemical, biological or chemical, and then applying it to my crop. 
it's even harder. So I, for example, started ordering sugar water. Simply, to my agronomist would tell me a chemical to put on, and I would put sugar water on just to make myself feel better. That's how strong the social pressure is. It, it's, it's hard to express how difficult it is to go against that. Um, I think it's really important to talk about it and to, to hear that because, um, as, as you've mentioned when we talked before the, the start of the podcast, um, when you start looking into regenerative agriculture, you see those documentaries and those videos. It sounds like such an amazing thing, like, a, <laughs> like, like it's all uh, in the perfect world where you transition to this beautiful way of doing agriculture. But you said it's actually much harder than, than, it's, than it looks like and transitioning is it's not that easy. It's, it's a, the social pressure. Yeah. It, and, and that's so misunderstood the social pressure is far exceeds anything else if a local farmer comes in and knocks at your door tomorrow and says anthony i really like what you're doing i've been inspired i want to start implementing some of those practices mm. um how would you advise them or what recommendation would you have They, they've really got to start with the something that they're willing to lose So start with, with a small area. They say, if this crop fails, it financially, it's, I can cope. And that needs to be their starting place because then they can afford to experiment and learn without it bankrupting their business. And so and coming back to my channel, what I'm trying to do is help them not make mistakes so that to make that transition as smooth as possible. There's something I want to talk about is resilience. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering how has this transition to regenerative practices impacted your farm in terms of resilience to extreme weather events or, or climate change? Yeah, yeah. I like this, uh, I like this question. A, a lot of, in, that, in those wonderful documentaries, they were often portray it as being very straightforward. Early on, we had some very quick uh, wins, I would say. So as we moved the soil less, we were able to travel more. So in a situation where, um, so, so within my context, it's wet soil that causes me the problems. So I quite quickly was able to gain an extra week at either end of the season. So my soil got drier a week earlier and it got wet a week later than my neighbors. So that meant I had a longer growing season, which made my life easier. And that was a very quick gain. However, as we've gone through Climate change has become really noticeable in the UK. Our weather events are more extreme and last for longer. So we have longer droughts. We have longer and heavier rain events. And it's had the effect that it has made it a lot harder to farm. And I stopped growing winter crops because of that uh, that climate change i was finding it very difficult to plant winter crops so i went to spring crops and but now i'm being hit by spring droughts and i'm finding it i'm 
having to go back to a mix of winter and spring just because I'm finding extremes at both ends of the spectrum. So I wouldn't say I've come up with a model that solves, works around the climate change yet. There have been small benefits, but on a larger scale, I'm still struggling. Can you maybe discuss the the economics of regenerative farming? Maybe how do the initial costs compare to the long-term benefits and how they evolve over time? Yeah, okay. So it's worth probably giving you a little bit of background as to the UK situation. So after we left the EU, our subsidy support has been reduced. And this has been substituted with environmental support. So we are rewarded for doing environmentally friendly practices. Fortunately, a lot of them are regenerative practices. So I have been able to benefit from government support for regenerative practices because I am doing regenerative practices. Um, so as an example, the to, if I plant a multi-species cover crop in the winter, that's worth £114 a hectare. So I'm able to capture that. If I then grow a spring cereal crop with relatively few uh, herbicides on, I can then generate, that also generates a support payment of £266. So when we combine that with um, being able to sell carbon as well, I'm at about £450 uh, per hectare, more than I would have been if I hadn't been implementing regenerative practices. So when I'm suffering a yield penalty, that goes a long way to uh, covering any yield penalty. A yield penalty, you mean like you, you have lower yields because of your regenerative practices? Yes. It happens a lot? And well, I think there's a lot of... So it depends how... You, your how you manage your regenerative transition so i described myself as hardcore regenerative in the fact that i went sort of cold turkey i said you know no more fertilizer minimal chemical intervention i probably if i'm in a financial situation where i can do that i think there are many i probably wouldn't recommend that for the average farmer it's probably better for them to feel their way through the transition and slowly reduce different uh, inputs as they feel more comfortable. But because I went to that extreme, I was able to access more uh, payment support. So, it, you know, in my particular case, by taking the extreme, I can also access more payments. Mm, right. Um, so overall, the economy of the farm is is healthier. You, you, yes. So you have sometimes lower yields definitely no 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 for me uh it's uh, i'm yielding about 60 percent of what i was in the conventional system but it's far more resilient so i employ 30 percent of the working capital that i employed under the conventional system and i rarely suffer crop failures 
which were far more likely in the conventional system. Right. And I, um, I'm guessing you've also reduced your input costs. Um, yes, so that would fuel yeah. synthetic fertilizers and chemicals and things like that. Yes, they're by about 30% of what they were previously. Right, so that's quite a big, a big, a big difference. Saving. And then you add to that the, the government programs that, yep. that pay you for implementing certain types of practices. And, uh, and then finally, the, the carbon that you can sell. Actually, maybe it's a good transition to mention the, the sponsor of this podcast, Sol Capital. So they're, they're a company that encourages farmers to transition to more regenerative practices and rewards them for their efforts through carbon payments. And I know you are um, part of the Soil Capital program. Yes. Could you maybe explain what this program is, how it works? Yes. So they have an online platform where you enter on a field-by-field -field basis the physical operations, so the tractor operations that have grown your crops, and then any chemicals, um, fertilizers that you've put on in order to grow that crop. They then measure that versus uh, as an algorithm against conventional practices in your area, and then depending on uh, the output of the algorithm will pay you for, for the improvement in your carbon sequestration rates versus conventional farming. And then that is sold as a certificate within your supply chain. So it's insetting rather than offsetting. Is that an, an extra incentive to to go a step further in your regenerative practices. If you look now at, at a different angle, which is a carbon, uh, and you, you're taking all of these metrics and you see kind of where you stand and you see exactly how much you can earn from, uh, from that carbon. Yeah, it certainly really helps because something like uh, incorporating organic manures back into the soil, that Certainly, if you're carbon trading, you can you get financial benefit for that. So it it's a costly exercise incorporating organic manures. But if it's if it's being if you're getting a, um, a payment from soil capital in as far as carbon storage, then it goes some way to mitigating the extra cost that you've introduced into your business. How do you use technology and data analysis to support and enhance your regenerative practices? Okay, so I, I think this is also an important reason, a, a point of discussion, is that a lot of people, a lot of farmers say this is just mixed farming. Regenerative farming is just mixed farming. It's like going back. Well, it, it's not because technology has a hugely important role to play. So I'm a big user of the John Deere uh, Operation Center functionality. And we do lots of trials on the farm. And as part of the YouTube channel, we can capture that data in the John Deere system. And then I report back. So for example, animal integration. There's a lot of debate about how that feeds through into yield. And is, is there a yield penalty? And we've shown through uh, trials 
with with lots of different fields, very with a similar soil type, that actually there has to be a minimum of six weeks gap between the the livestock leaving the field and you planting your cash crop. Otherwise, there's a yield penalty for having animals in the field. So that sort of thing and. And we can report back on fungicide use and fertilizer trials, all of which we do on farm, capture the data on the John Deere platform and then report it back through the YouTube channel to try and share that with possibly farmers who are less technically able or less financially able. You know, try and share that, make make a community where, you know, to support those farmers who don't have access to that sort of technology. And you also make use of the information you get through this this system? Oh, absolutely. Um, can you give us an example? Uh, yes. So, for example, we you know that situation with the sheep. If you had a cover crop and you grazed the cover crop, then you went straight in with the drill and planted it. You in this particular trial we did, it yielded six point two five tons per hectare of wheat whereas if it was just a straight cover crop and you drilled straight into the cover crop without grazing it achieved 7.3 hectares so that sounds initially like there's a yield penalty for having the sheep in but if you delay it and then um provide that six week gap before you then plant the crop we were at that penalty drops to sort of half a ton. So you, there are lots of nuances and it's very difficult to, for me as one farmer to say, this works on my farm, it will work on your farm. It's far more complicated than that. And it's worth saying that um, there's a very good podcast by John Kempf. And we, we spoke earlier about agronomy and he said that farmers should not Uh, outsource their agronomy that they should definitely uh, they should do that knowledge they should have that knowledge hold it personally and walk their crops and know their crops and it's something that's an unintended consequence of my youtube channel is that my own personal knowledge has gone up massively because when I'm publicizing something on YouTube, I want to make sure it's right. So I've done more research uh, as part of my YouTube channel than I probably ever would have done if I was just farming on my own, uh, on my own without making a public statement at the same time. So there's quite a lot of new concepts and, and things to learn for, for farmers. Like how, how would uh, farmers go about this where could they find information to, to help them and it's isn't it sometimes a bit hard to have to learn all of these extra concepts when you already have a very busy life working the farm fortunately farmers sit on tractors so uh, you know really podcasts are a good place to start they're great uh, <laughs> yeah, i hadn't even thought about ours um but really uh, john john kemp uh, the regenerative farming podcast he really um opened my mind to what was possible i found i find his podcast great um joel williams and his presentations they're very scientific based um uh, meta analysis i think is very important because there are quite a lot of nuances within um studies 
and therefore Joel's approach to analysis of data is really important. And I think we should be science-led. I don't think this field should be subjective. And therefore, uh, the, the, I'm, I'm fortunate, as I said, I've got a degree in biology, so I can uh, read papers and understand it myself, which is part of the reason I'm doing the YouTube is because it helps, I feel I can explain stuff to farmers on a farmer-to-farmer level. Um, but yes, books, good reading list, podcasts, presentations, get out there and start learning. Actually, if you have a, a specific recommendations for books and podcasts and so on, may, maybe what you can do is send them to me uh, via message or something. And I will, I'll put them in the, the description of this episode. So if anyone wants to find out more, they can uh, check the description. Sounds good. How do you connect with consumers who are interested in sustainably produced food? Um, you mentioned earlier that you, you sell turkeys direct to customers. Maybe that's a good place to start. Yes. So the, the turkey customers really interested in the uh, agroforestry. They all thought I was actually starting to grow wine, but uh, no, it's more fruit-based. But uh, I th it's interesting uh, where I thought regenerative agriculture was going to go and where I actually think it's now going. So we started off with regenerative contracts. So in the UK, um, Wild Farming uh, were a company that were encouraging farmers to buy crop. So that's where you would grow wheat and beans or oats and beans to mix crops together. And That is a little bit difficult because it's very prescriptive. And coming back to this context bit, it might work on my farm or it might, it, it, it might not. So a local estate, they have a wild farming uh, contract. And it works for them because they have a very good seed cleaning uh, operation. So they can take uh, a combine tank where they've got beans and oats mixed together they can take it back to the farm and then separate it and they've got then they've got the oats to sell to one buyer and the beans to sell to another now in my situation where i don't have a cleaner capable of splitting those two crops it means we were getting a premium for the for the cereal the oats but not for the beans and for me that And I didn't feel that that was fully rewarding my regenerative practices. Whereas, actually, as time has gone on, there's more of a secondary market for supporting regenerative practices. So, for example, um, there's a contract with ADM whereby it uh, rewards regenerative practices in all seed rape growing. And it's a tick list of, of different practices if you do cover crops if you don't disturb the soil if you include organic manures you get paid for each of the practices that you adopt and that is separate from the sale of your product and it's also similar to soil capital in the fact that the my carbon practices or my carbon friendly practices are being rewarded separately from 
the crop and the commodity that I'm growing. And I'm much more comfortable with that than I am with bundling it to say this is a regenerative crop. I deserve a premium. I think you the two practices should be split because fundamentally uh, when my produce goes on a lorry, it's going to be mixed with environmentally friendly and unfriendly product. And therefore, I think the two elements need to be sold separately. I will sell my environmental uh, benefits to one buyer in, in my supply chain, undoubtedly, but that needs to be separate from the product. Right. Um, going back to the turkeys again. <laughs> so you sell them directly to, to customers? Yes. How does that work? So you, you're kind of um, removing the middleman. Yes. And you're doing it all yourself. How did you learn to do that? And how did you develop that side of the business? So uh, our business is 70 years old, the turkeys. Um, my grandmother started it as a sideline. Um, we grew it to, a, I think, about three and a half thousand birds where we were selling it to local uh, butcher shops. And as supermarkets came along, the, we, there were less and less uh, butchers. And so we'd always had a few people who came to the farm, friends and family. And that's really where we started from, friends and family. And then when I came back to the farm, I was quite worried because I looked at uh, all the customers and they were all my grandmother's friends. And I thought, mm, they're looking a little bit, little bit old. I'm not sure how much um, you know, uh, future this business has. And we set up a website and we started selling through the website. And from there, it's gone. So it, it's grown. So it's all online purchases, deposits paid in advance. And then we can market it uh, through the website, really. And so lots of Google marketing. You mentioned that you were quite a, a hardcore uh, regenerative farmer. And one of the key principles in is integrating animals. So I'm, I'm quite curious of how those turkeys are being integrated into the, the system and what's their, their use on the, the system as a whole. Okay, so the easiest integration first is the manure. So when they, when they finish, the barn is cleaned out and that is mixed with grass clippings and wood chipped. And because compost is a complicated uh, subject in itself, but you are trying to mix a carbon source with a nitrogen source. And you are trying to get the bacteria to replicate very fast. That creates heat, which kills all of the bad bacteria. And then you and then the compost needs to mature and then the fungi will start growing in the compost. And that's what I want to create a fungus-rich compost. And we really use that product in fields that are sick in order to try and bring the soil back to life as quickly as possible. So that would be our medication. You know, how do you bring back a sick soil? Use compost. It's very, it's quite expensive process. I wouldn't use it over my whole farm, but for special cases, I will use it. So we use grass clippings to create green material. That provides the food. We'll provide turkey muck, 
because it has a very high nitrogen value and will provide wood chip, which has a very high carbon source. So when you combine those three elements together, it makes the it and they gives the energy for the bacteria to grow fast. It the greenery helps them get very hot, and then it cools down, and then the the fungi can uh, use the carbon in the wood chip. So that's the first point. And then within the the, the farming scale. We try and f- ensure that any weed seed we take out of the seed cleaner is fed to the turkeys. They have access to it. They seem very excited by it when you bring it in. Um, and it, going forward, they will graze the agroforestry, the grass between the agroforestry. So those are sort of the three easy elements of right. integration. What is your vision for the future of regenerative agriculture, both on your farm, but also globally? I think it, well, wider scale adoption is is would be is a major aspiration. I think that that requires quite a fundamental mind shift in farming and their support services. It's at the moment a lot of farmers rely on consultants to tell them what to do, but I think it's. Gabe Brown, possibly, who says regenerative agriculture is about cultivating between your ears. And I think that that growth of knowledge is going to be the hardest thing for agriculture to, to work with. It's not a case of paint by number. You, you, it is individual. It is specific to individual farms. And therefore, that investment in knowledge is really important and and I think that will be the greatest challenge but it will be as far as what's happened on my farm we've touched on the inputs have fallen my my working capital is reduced my risk exposure has reduced my business is more secure and I'm growing a better product So one of the things that's quite noticeable is that in this locality, we're on the edge of a chalk escarpment. And on top of the chalk hills, it's easy, relatively easy to grow milling wheat, wheat that makes bread. But as you go down the chalk and it goes into a clay basin, it's much easy, it's quite difficult to grow milling wheat it's much easier to grow feed wheat i.e wheat that goes into animal food but it is worth less money if you can feed people you get a premium and because my land has historically been clay based i haven't been able to achieve high protein levels so to put it into perspective Uh, feed wheat might be 11.5% protein, whereas a milling wheat has to be 13.5% protein. Now, we have actually been able to achieve over 14% protein with no fertilizer by having less yield. So in my experience, yield, it dilutes quality. And therefore, I'm, I'm more comfortable knowing that I'm growing, growing less, but it's of a better quality. How do you grow less? Do you just plant less seeds per hectare? 
Uh, no, I think it, in fact, <laughs> in fact, we plant more seeds these days. Um, but I think if you imagine uh, each plant, how many seeds does each plant grow? So in a conventional system, maybe you're talking about 500 seeds per plant. Whereas in, a in my particular example, maybe I'm down to 250 seeds per plant. And therefore, I suppose you, each plant is putting less, is trying to support less seeds, but the seeds that it is putting more effort into each seed. And that, that, Feet, that comes back in better quality um we, and 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 you know that was a learning experience i never anticipated that as an income outcome when i started the process just one topic that comes to mind is that um so far um in our discussion today but also with other discussions i've had with farmers we talk a lot about the economy of the farm so in out and and the direct kind of economy of the farm but something I'm wondering is that the farm also has value and you also increase or decrease the value of the farm as a whole, as, a, as, a, as an asset, value. capital yeah. value. Um, and doesn't it make a difference if you regenerate the soil and you improve the biodiversity and you, you have all of these uh, other ecological benefits? Does it impact the actual value of your farm? I would say not yet. Um, the, certainly, if anything... I think there's argument to say that it's reducing its capital value at the moment, simply because if you, in the UK, if you're signing up to a particular scheme that delivers biodiversity gain, you could be signing up for a 30-year commitment and therefore any potential own, uh, future owner could have their land use limited and really with climate change we don't know what land use will be in 30 years time so in those situations i think uh, there's a danger that the capital value of your land goes down on the flip side that we have examples like the agroforestry where it's aesthetically pleasing as well as uh, by delivering biodiversity gain, and I think in those situations, I think as you would come in, as you drive into my farm, in if you come here in five years' time, you'll say, "Wow, this is a really beautiful farm." And so, from that point of view, I think maybe I have added capital growth in. So, I think it, it comes back to context. I can comment as far as my farm goes, but course, it will. Yeah. It's, it's okay, that's, that's very interesting. I, I didn't really know about all of these like, long-term contracts uh, and obviously makes a big difference to safety, I guess. Uh, yeah, risk. Uh, but yeah, the risk aspect of things. But still talking about risk and we talked about resilience to climate change and to the limited amount of topsoil that is available. I mean, if you're building more topsoil, if you're building resilience because the soil structure allows for more moisture to, to soak in, uh, and if you're better protected against uh, extreme events, it logically seems to me like then your farm should have more value because it's because of all of these things. I, I would completely agree. And for the farmer himself, he will value that land more. I think it's very difficult to for the market to recognize that investment. It would be interesting to see if 
your local farmers would have more interest in your land as a result of that because they've seen what's been going on locally and they've said actually his soil works better but in the environment we work in i don't think that that's recognized by the wider market yet i think it could be in the future right still related to this i've heard that um there's a potential issue in the future is that a lot of farmers will eventually retire and that there's not enough young people who are willing to get into farming and to, to, um, to take over these farms. Wouldn't having a regenerative farm with all of these benefits be more attractive to an, a younger generation? I think about myself personally, um, it sounds so much more exciting to take over a farm with healthy, diverse soil and an exciting um, biodiversity around rather than, than the sort of conventional farm. Uh, yes. I have to say, and it's a really um, qualitative uh, assessment. Uh, but I am much, and I think I, I think it, uh, it might be Joel, Joel Salatin who said, you know, every day I used to go about go start my working day thinking how I was going to kill stuff, and now I start every day thinking how I'm going to, you know, make stuff grow. And I would definitely agree with that mindset change. And it does make, it's not without its challenges, but it's a definitely more positive and it's very much more enjoyable. It's not without its challenges, but it's more enjoyable. And finally, the other point I was going to make is that one of the big challenges for agriculture is getting new entrants in. Um, and there's two, two elements to that. Firstly, a lot of sheep grazing uh, within an arable rotation. We would call it flying flocks in the UK because they move around so much. Is a wonderful opportunity for young people to join agriculture. That's the first thing. And second thing is it requires an open mindset, regenerative agriculture. So for, from my own perspective, I take on a lot of young students and it is better for me to work with a young mind that is willing to learn than try and take uh, a mind that's been in agriculture and is used to a conventional system for 40 years to try and get them to change to mind mindset. So we do a lot of work with young people to bring them on. Talking of young people and the future, what gives you the most hope for the future? I suppose the changes that I've already seen. Um, I can see the I can see the market changing, the market responding. I think I'm very excited by the amount of corporate interest in regenerative practices. The greater involvement with corporate as far as ESG goes, environmental and social involvement, uh, it helps they they provide innovative financial packages to motivate farmers and to see that money coming in, whether it be through environmental services or carbon trading, and, and that as a separate uh, support mechanism, because fundamentally the price of agricultural products is never going to be high enough. We might as well be realistic about that. But if you're delivering environmental benefits and you're being paid for those separately – you have a more sustainable model that will enable you to 
adopt these practices. And uh, the uh, agricu- UK agriculture uses the, the expression, you have to be in the black to be in the green, i.e. you have to be making money in order to do environmental services. We're uh, kind of co- coming to the end of this conversation. It's been absolutely uh, fascinating. I loved it. But I have a couple more questions that are a little bit more philosophical, I guess. Um, what is the most important lesson you've learned from working with the land? I once listened to a podcast where uh, the... F- so I think I know it's a, it's a John Kemp podcast and he asks his guests at the end... What is something that you're thinking about, but you don't think society is willing to listen to and or is not prepared to hear quite yet? And the one interviewee once said that your your land is willing to talk back to you. And at the time, I thought this was ridiculous. And uh, he, he used the analogy. He said, well, which one? Which farmers would hire uh, a stockman who wasn't willing to talk to their animals or, you know, communicate with their animals? And he said that's generally well regarded in in livestock management circles. But if you asked them to communicate with their soil, people would think they were, you know, mad. And I think it's interesting as time has gone by, I definitely get a sense of good soil and bad soil. And I'd like to be able to make my soil happier. <laughs> happy soil. Yes. Happy farmer. <laughs> happy um, bank manager. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most common misconception about regenerative agriculture you encounter and how do you respond to it? That it's going to be easy. That I'm just going to buy a machine and then it's all going to be easy. Um, I think the journey, I've, I've said it already, but the journey is between your ears and you've got to have a support network. Otherwise, yeah, it's going to be very hard. So can people get in touch with you if they need a little of bit course. of support? Yeah, happy, happy for any, uh, preferably subscribers, to, uh, to contact me through my YouTube channel. Yeah, obviously, uh, if you want to learn more about more about this go to uh, anthony to anthony pierce yes. youtube channel sure we can uh, have subscribe some, and yeah we can, have, we can have some notes in the in the i, I will add the notes <laughs> in the in the link in the description of the podcast of course anthony thank you so much for this conversation i really loved it and thank you for having me here at your farm uh, thank you pleasure thank you for coming mm-hmm.